Hello and welcome to Midriff, the podcast about gender, music, and music gear. I am your host, Hillary Jones. So it's been a wild last week or so, so I'll give you a quick update. Uh, the last week, I scooted on the plane for the first time in a very long time over to Akron, Ohio to do some trainings with the new crew at Earthquaker Devices. And the new crew, that crew was great. I just love them. And I got to meet a bunch of the old Earthquaker crew in person for the first time after doing work- workshops with them virtually over the last year. And it just felt so nice. They're nice. Akron is nice. I just, I don't know. It, it was like sort of just, it's almost like things were sort of normal again. I don't know. It was so great. Uh, so the first day and a half was a, my standard training I do with new folks and then a half day of like values and mission creation with the whole crew. And yeah, they're just all so great. I got to hang with Julie, uh, who's been just such a great supporter over the last year ate just so much good food. She took me to their headquarters. I got to see Jamie's Wild Basement shop studio. I'm not sure what you call it, where apparently there were at one time like nine employees down there at one time. It is a regular basement and not even the whole basement. I have no idea how that happened, but really a good efficient use of space. Uh, Yeah, it was a lot. So, (laughs) and as you'd imagine, it just, you know, it was filled to the brim with just like old rare pedals that I have never seen in person before, just so many cool amps, guitars, etc. Yeah, they were super kind. It was so great to work with them and to get to do that work in person as well. And another in-person thing that happened uh, over the last week, I went to my first ever event since the pandemic started, which was the first show of B.B. Robinson's comedy tour. And yeah, if if uh, she's coming through your town, I highly recommend it. Super funny. She's the best. On my trip, I also, I've got a lot of recommendations all of a sudden. So here we go. I listened to the audiobook of The Power by Naomi Alderman, which was so wild. <laughs> if you are into sci-fi, like kind of akin to The Handmaid's Tale or The Parable of the Sower, I highly recommend that too. Like it's a, just a interesting thought experiment about related to power uh, and gender. And yeah. Uh, my very last recommendation for the day is a movie podcast called I Know What You Did, which is my current comfort listen. I I haven't seen let's, maybe most of the movies they are talking about. Like, I barely get to see movies at all right now. But the two of them are just so hilarious that it honestly doesn't matter at all. I would just listen to them talk about kind of anything all day long. It's great. Uh, so check that out, too. If you have recommendations for me for music, for gear, for podcasts, really anything, shoot me a message. I would love to hear about it. I just, I just, yeah, there's just so many good things in the world, right? Um, all right. So last thing, I conquered my fear and finally created a full demo video. It has been my goal to make one of these by the end of the year. And here we are. I've wanted to do this for a million years. And it's uh, this one's for the RBMK, which is a collaboration between Electro Foods, Pedals, and Dirge Electronics. You know, as I've mentioned here and there, I've been scared to create a full demo video first because I just assumed I had to post it on YouTube and I'm terrified of YouTube. I'm going to put it on IGTV, (laughs) see how it goes. YouTube's terrifying mostly because I just really don't want to have to deal with trolls. Like I feel like Instagram is a little more controlled environment. I don't know. Second, I felt like I didn't really have the skills to do it. As you know, if you've been listening for a while, I had not recorded anything really. 
until this podcast started. It was sort of my way of tiptoeing into recording, and I've, you know, slowly been building up my skills a little bit around that. Yeah, I don't know. I still don't have the skills. I'm still over my head. My auto, audio recording's getting better, and that's the important thing, right? That's <laughs> We're talking about sound, so that seems the most important. Uh, the video stuff is still a real challenge for me. And, you know, but I guess that requires practice, too. So working on it. And, uh, yeah. Anyway, check out the video. And I definitely am open to constructive feedback or ideas around that. There's a lot to think about when creating these things, like logistically, stylistically, practically, when doing these videos. And, uh, yeah, I definitely have, like, a renewed appreciation for folks who do this regularly because it is a lot of work. <laughs> but, yeah, it's fun. Music's fun. Who knew? And, of course, you should check out the video because the pedal is killer, too. So there you go. All right. Before we get into it, I want to thank some of Midris' sponsors. First, Earthquaker Devices. Perhaps you've heard of them. Um, yeah, I spent some time talking about them already, but you can check out their Instagram and YouTube for rad features on Amur Asu, on Yuko Miyakoshi, on Jenna Fournier, and the one and only Celise, covering a just a range of different instruments demonstrating a range of their pedals. They're always cool. As always, you can check out Earthquaker Devices and all of their red pedals, handmade in Akron, Ohio, at earthquakerdevices.com. And I want to, once again, thank Studio 121. Skylar can help you with all of your audio needs at a super reasonable price with a quick turnaround. Editing, production, recording, jingles, podcast music, whatever you need, she can help you do it. So find Studio 121 on Instagram at official studio 121. These sponsors support the podcast and I hope you support them too. You can find links in the show notes to sponsors and to the Midriff Instagram and Facebook pages and the website as well. So today's guest is Rebecca Hasso, who is a singer, songwriter, artist, and buyer at Old Town School Music Store in Chicago. As you will see in a moment, just a moment, her music is beautiful. It's like kind of haunting. It's like, I just, I really love it. I think you're going to love it too. And as someone who has been in the music retail space for 15 years, she has a lot of insight into what works or what works in those spaces, what, what the work actually looks like, considerations in that space, and some specific stuff around acoustics, which we've only gotten into here and there, I would say on the podcast. So a little bit more on that as well. Plus, we even get into one of my favorite topics, which has not been covered here enough, which is stage banter. Oh, and did I mention that she's making a fantasy folk album? Because she is. So there you go. After our interview, stick around for a bit, and uh, we'll get into what it means to be an ally, accomplice, or a co-conspirator. And with that, here is my interview with Rebecca. Silent I stand, and you ask me what is.
Rebecca, welcome to Midriff. Yay. Woo. <laughs> Thank you. Ow. Glad to be here. <laughs> Yay. I'm very excited that you're here. For folks who might not know you, can you introduce yourself, your name, your pronouns, and a little bit about yourself and your background with music? Sure. My name is Rebecca Hasso. My pronouns are she, her, and I, I've just been playing music almost my whole life since I was 10, um, maybe even before that. We always sang and stuff. And I'm a singer-songwriter, guitarist, fingerstyle guitarist. <laughs> yeah, and I, I've been working in the music instruments industry for about 15 years, so I'm just really um, immersed in, in music and music instruments gear. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> so you you said you started playing at 10, but your we- it says on your website that you didn't start playing out until a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk about why or what was the that process look like a little bit? Yeah, I I guess growing up, I didn't really know a lot of people who played guitar, and I definitely didn't know any women or girls who played guitar. I knew some guys, and they played a lot of licks and covers and things I didn't do. I was playing a lot of classical. I was learning classical, and um, all along I was writing songs. But I just, I don't know. I had these dreams. Like I thought I'd go on Star Search. Yeah, you did. Oh my gosh. I forgot about Star Search. I'm so (laughs) excited that you put that thought in my brain. Oh my gosh. Wow. I mean, I I really thought I was special, but at the same time, I (laughs) wasn't very good yet. And um, I think just there, I grew up on the South side of Chicago, which is really blue collar, working class, a lot of um, factories and not a lot of things like coffee shops or, you know, the bars are where I grew up were like Polish bars that old men drink. (laughs) So there just wasn't a culture for me to experience that would put in my head to go play out or, and I didn't meet people. I didn't know people. So I really just, and I am a little bit on the antisocial side. (laughs) So I would just sit in my room, come home after, after school and, you know, other kids would do things together or play video games. And I was just like really into writing songs and being by myself. (laughs) (laughs) And then right out of college, I started working at a camera shop and that's where I actually met some musicians and started my first band. And right before that, there were just some people that I made friends with that were real encouraging. And um, I just started, you know, getting out of my shell. And I remember my first gig was really, really nerve wracking. I was just, <laughs> and there are so many things people are telling, were telling me like advice, you know, oh. like you want to talk between each song, but not too much. <laughs> and, um, you know, don't go, cause I can be a little long winded as you might be experiencing now. I'm no, sure. I'm very into this. <laughs> and it was this little place called Kitty Moon. It was like a bar that didn't have a liquor license yet. So like, we're only selling like chocolate <laughs> bars and coffee. And, <laughs> um, and yeah, it was just like a bunch of people showed up and not a bunch, not like, it was just a lot of people. Thousands of people like, showed up. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, there's a line out the door. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but it was like a lot of people from my church and a lot of my family and everyone was just like, ah. Oh, that's <laughs> She's really <playing>. nice. <laughs> it was. It was a really, they were really supportive. <laughs> how how old were you then when that happened? I was probably, I was probably like 23, maybe 22. Yeah. Got yeah. it. Yeah. Well, so. 
you made me think of something that we haven't really discussed on here very much, but can you talk a little bit about your your uh, between song uh, banter style? <laughs> Uh, do you have a do you have a style or do you just like are you just digging in on like I because I feel like the this this way that that plays out in different genres of music is interesting too. I can say that I've never really learned to do it well. I don't know why. A lot for a long time and even now, I'm not completely comfortable on stage. I'm very I'm not very mindful. You know, I'm very like frazzled and uh-huh. just having a hard time focusing so it's a little bit of stage fright in a way and my banter I do talk between every song and I think it's gone from telling you a little bit about the song sometimes I I, there's a particular song I wrote about the Chicago fire the great Chicago fire which was a really important part of our history here Mm -hmm. but I would tell everyone the history basically what I a prose version of what I'm about to tell you in song. (laughs) And my mom would say, you know, you're just going to sing that stuff. You don't have to tell us, you know, but I was told someone gave me this advice that I'm supposed to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, And I, and I kind of, you know, I just felt like, well, to understand these lyrics, you need all this information. (laughs) So I'm still figuring it out. I definitely like to talk between songs and, um, and it helps me to get a feel from my crowd if they're going to think yeah. I'm funny or if they're going to really not think I'm funny. <laughs> and to what extent I need to stop talking. <laughs> I love it's that. It's still a process. It's a work that's, in progress. I think that's a really smart thing, though, because I do think that there it's like by having that opportunity and like getting to like vibe with them a little bit to see where they're at, you can kind of figure out where to go with things, which I think is yeah. a, that's a skill. It takes a long time to figure that out, I think. Yeah. So I want to talk a little more about your, your, like, sort of as you're growing up, like what your experience was with gear. So can you talk a little bit about like your, maybe your first guitar, whatever your first instrument was? Sure. Growing up, guitar was my instrument. I mean, I started playing harmonica a little bit as a kid, but who doesn't? Um, (laughs) But I, I, when I was about 10, um, my, my family got a, a piano and I have two sisters and I'm in the middle and my mom and my younger sister were going to take piano lessons and I hated doing what everyone else was doing. I always had to be different. So (laughs) I really wanted to learn to play the banjo actually, Mm. because I love, I love the Muppet movie, but that's a whole other thing. (laughs) And, um, but it, it, this is like, you know, on the South side, like I said, on the South side of Chicago, there just weren't banjo opportunities back then. So, um, I ended up, we had a guitar in the attic that was my uncle's and, um, or like a real old, you know, just cheap classical. So I started taking, um, guitar lessons at our neighborhood shop and, and my sister and mother really didn't continue with the piano, but I, I really loved just playing this really cheap guitar and having no money and parents who really didn't indulge much in me. I, um, it was really long time, years and years before I got my first steel string guitar, which is like my dream. I just mm-hmm. always wanted one. Yeah. So that was kind of how I all, it all started on this classical guitar called Norma. That was oh, the yeah, name Norma. The, the mm-hmm. Norma. How, so how old were you when you got your steel string then? I was actually 18. Okay. 
or so yeah it was right after high school that I you know I I had a job and yeah money and I, and I was really I was really cheap back then I, I didn't want to spend any money I was saving for college and mm-hmm. I was really afraid of being in debt so I just even though I had a job for years I still never bought one because I thought it, I was scared to sure. invest in something and then one day I went I um actually moved to St. Paul Minnesota to live with some family for a little while and bought a seagull um, oh yeah seagull s6 it wasn't even called an s6 back then it was just oh. like cedar <laughs> the cedar, <laughs> the cedar model yeah <laughs> i feel like they really excel at the cedar models though they do that's kind that's of their, thing, kind of their jam yeah for sure <laughs> so you you had your steel string what was the adjustment process going from the classical to the steel was that was that a rough process for you or i don't think so i don't remember it being um mm-hmm. a rough process i was you know i just I was a really tough kid. Like I liked lifting boxes and doing <laughs> things that were, I was kind of a boyish kid. I was like, I, I liked the things that, you know, the boys liked. I didn't really, you know, ha- hang around that much with girls. Cause I didn't understand hair and dolls that mm-hmm, much. I understood mm-hmm. like soccer and, mm-hmm. you know, and so I, I guess I, I always like whenever those periods of times would be where I went from maybe a, a lull of playing guitar to like a lot of guitar and my fingers would hurt. Mm-hmm. kind of liked it. Ooh, <laughs> it was, like, makes yeah, me feel like, alive. <laughs> yeah. It's like getting bruises and feeling like, yeah, mm-hmm. I earned that bruise. <laughs> yeah. Look how tough I am. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So I can't, I can't, I don't have any, you know, strong memory of it being an adjustment. But I'm sure it was. (laughs) So you played solo and then you've also played in groups. Mm -hmm. Do you, uh, well, I guess, actually, let's start off with what are you, what is like your main instrument right now? Or do you have a couple? My main instrument is um, like in terms of what I'm actually playing. The model you actually play, yeah. Yeah, it's a Martin Triple O eighteen Golden Era. Cool. So it's really, it's really kind of, you know, it's not fancy, but it's nice. It's a nice guitar. And um, I... I think it's a 2008 and I got it in 2011 at a deep discount because it was yeah. shop had had it for three years. And, um, that's mainly what I play, play now. I don't really play, I have some electric gear and stuff, but I don't really use it yet anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably will someday again. That's why I hold on to it. And I also do play a little banjo. Not, yeah. not a little banjo, but you know, <laughs> not a small banjo. banjo, but I play a small <laughs> amount of banjo. That's yes. an important clarification. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Nice. So you have a banjo as well? Yes. Yeah. Cool. Uh what model yeah. of banjo do you have? It's a it's actually it's a it's a gold tone um MM one fifty. And gold tone's kind of a cool, inexpensive, you know, compared to like American made counterparts. It's it's affordable Uh and i fell in love with this model but i didn't like the headstock that said gold tone and had it just wasn't as classy as i i need things to be so i um i had our luthier at work i i paid him to make a rosewood veneer with a um star inlay to go over the headstock so it kind of doesn't look like it's very customized. It's, it doesn't look like a, your typical gold tone, and it looks much more like a classic open back banjo. That's awesome. I appreciate that you yeah. uh, went to that level of uh, detail. <laughs> so I guess 
what I was getting at a little bit is like, so you've played solo a lot and then you played a little bit with groups you'd said. Yes. You want to talk a little bit about your experience in both of those spaces? Sure. Um, I joined, I started a band when I like in my early twenties for the first time, because a lot of things that I've done in life were kind of like, I thought that was what you're supposed to do. You know, Mm. (laughs) like I didn't Mm -hmm. really know exactly what I wanted or what I was supposed to get out of something. So, um, but it was fun and I learned a lot in both. I've been in two different bands and I've learned a lot just both with playing with others being fair and sharing <laughs> and um it's like being on a on a you know soccer like team or something date. right yeah <laughs> or play date yes <laughs> I don't know I started out because I come from um an acoustic guitar background and back then it was a very strummy strummy kind of songwriting I I really our band wasn't wasn't really able to how do I put it? I just wasn't able to understand the role of my guitar in the band. I was playing electric, but I was still just very strummy, mm. very much just playing as I would play an acoustic. And um, from after that band, I a couple of years later started another band and it was kind of, you know, gradually became like a soul and funk band. And I think because that was what I really wanted to do I, at the time, I really wanted to write that kind of music and I mm-hmm. really enjoyed it. it. It became when I started to get into it, it, it was really fun. And the whole group was a lot more collaborative in some ways because I started to realize that my guitar parts need to be less full, less mm. thick. And and I need to leave room for the other parts. Like I was previously ha- writing or playing very dense, you know, guitar. Right. And so I started and I started to learn more about like what what my sound should be. I started to sort of, you know, zero in a little bit more on what um, what would sound good and what I liked. And, you know, based on what I was listening to, how other guitars sound and just like where my guitar fit in the mix. Did you do much with like pedals and stuff at the time? Yeah. I assume you have to in a funk band, right? It's kind of required. Yeah, yeah, especially the wah pedal. Yeah. (laughs) I I had my wah pedal and... um, I got really into like, um, octave playing octaves and octave soloing. And, Mm -hmm. um, I'm not really, actually, I'm not really much of a soloer or a improviser. So, you know, I would have to kind of write the parts mainly because I, I can't, I can't think when I'm on stage, I can't process what's happening, but yeah, the wah pedal I had, I really love like vibrato pedals, Mm -hmm. um, for certain things, for certain effects, not really like for whole songs, but yeah. for like endings of mm. phrases and stuff, they were sometimes really cool. I had a I had a carbon copy delay that I never actually used in my band, and <laughs> I had it for ages just because it was one of those things. Like like all my electric gear is now. Like someday this might come in hand. Right. I mean, it seems it's a it's a classic. Yeah. It, yeah. it was really cool, and eventually I did sell it, but. <laughs> Um, I have uh, for a long time in, in a lot of ways I have a revolving door of gear <laughs> fair yeah do you all sell much in the way of pedals I actually I was looking more at the guitars but at the shop do you sell effects a lot um not a ton I mean we, yeah. we carry the basics our shop is really um so our shop is the old town school music store here in Chicago and it's part of a really big um actually the country's biggest music um community music school so we're um our shop is really um geared towards 
the acoustic musician, yeah. the folk musicians. Um, we do carry and do really well with electric stuff, but we're quite a, sh- a small physical shop so we're we're really heavy on the different you know acoustic instruments out there so we carry pedals but and we like to we have plenty of people that come through that want to play with room and play with them but it's not really our focus that yeah i guess that was my question right because i i assumed that most of the it seems like that that is the emphasis so can you talk a little bit more about your role there so you're you're a buyer but maybe you can explain what that actually means for folks who are maybe not sure how that exactly works so i've been working there in about a month, it will be 10 years. Yeah. And um, throughout that time, I've risen the ranks to buyer. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what did you start as? I started as a just a part-time floor person like mm-hmm. anybody else. And then I became the floor manager. I sort of skipped over the receiving manager role, but learned, you know, I, I do some receiving when to fill in. So I, I know the job as well. The buyer job is... Um, is I, I think a lot of the thing about our shop is we're not typical of other shops because we don't have, we're not a guitar shop with like a few lesson rooms. We're mm-hmm. a music school with a, a guitar shop. Right. So we have a little bit of a different take. And um, my, my role there is mainly to control the inventory, you know, kind of look at what we're buying and buy based on what's selling and kind of make decisions based on, based on what's not selling, what's selling, um, what we can get, which is really difficult right now. Anybody Mm -hmm. who's tried to buy anything right now because of the pandemic has probably experienced a lot of shortages Mm -hmm. in this industry. And so just trying to find substitutions and um, keep our store filled with instruments, which is actually really hard. (laughs) There's a lot of of gaps, but um, because a lot of a lot of vendors just aren't able to deliver. Vendors aren't able to deliver. And it seems like folks are selling more, too. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. That it's just like kind of a weird mix of problems. But um, and then the other thing that I. So I do that, you know, and it's everything from guitars to like nitty gritty things like strings and peg winders and picks, you know, and trying to keep things in stock. And we have because our school runs on sessions and there are very specific requirements that certain classes need. I have to communicate with the program directors and teachers and make sure we have those things in stock for classes. Um, But then also the different parts of our school do need to order things sometimes mm-hmm. for their programs. Um, we have a lot of outreach program that programs that work with youth on the South side and, um, you know, far away from our school, but they'll need to provide things like djembe's or, um, I don't know, this and that mm-hmm. shaker eggs, kazoos. So I kind of have to help out with a lot of just general needs of the school and ordering if, if we can get it through our, for our vendors. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and so what's your, what's your outreach look like for your, uh, marketing to get to, to reach the world? Okay. Yeah. So I think, um, a lot of, for the store anyway, I can only Mm. speak for the store's part of it. Um, we, we have, um, a great, a great team, um, mainly this guy, Evan Holmes, who is our, um, kind of like our social media marketer for the store. He's really, he's really on top of it. And, um, doing a lot of posting and communicating new products through social media and then using reverb. You, um, mm-hmm. Reverb is um, really the the thing, right? Like everybody yeah. is on reverb and it's sort of taken 
the Old Town School, which was this little store that nobody knew of as an online thing to like a level of, hey, they have really good customer service, you know, good reviews and mm-hmm. and just it's like advertising for kind of free. Yeah. <laughs> Not maybe yeah. Free, no, but... it, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I feel like there's like for folks that, that are doing stuff online, but they don't have that like distribution network for or like space where people can find out about them sort of organically. It makes it a lot harder. So having exactly. that space where people are like, this is the place I go and I find out about if I'm looking for a whatever, a, this like Martin or this Larravee or whatever, like I want to find it. And where do I find it? And here's here's an option. And it's just magically on my computer now. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's been real helpful. And um, it's, it's been a lifesaver for us. Yeah. Yeah. As far as like the the models that you're selecting, I'm wondering about like the one thing that we talk about sometimes on the podcaster that comes up is like selecting items related to people's needs or, um, you know, which could in some cases be like physical needs. So when I'm thinking about like ordering acoustic guitars, for example, like that is an issue for folks, like whether this guitar physically fits them or not. What does that look like for you? Yeah, that's a really good point um, to bring up. I feel like in general, what I'm gathering from talking to vendors, going to the trade shows and whatnot, and of course, what you see available, the the industry standard has always been the dreadnought. Mm -hmm. And that's not really a good size for a lot of particularly women for lots of reasons, both um, height and body size or body types and and then plenty of men also are just smaller in stature and yeah. need a smaller guitar. So um, our shop, we tend to favor triple O's, OM's, double O's, parlors um, over dreadnoughts. We always carry dreadnoughts, but even for me, it's like, oh, I got to remember to get some dreadnoughts. <laughs> you know, we don't have enough dreadnoughts. And um, I've expressed, you know, some of the vendors, you know, they have these like starter packs that mm-hmm. come with a guitar. And it's always a dreadnought. A gig bag. <laughs> it's always a dreadnought. Yeah. And, um, and so I've, I've expressed to some of these reps that, hey, you know, you guys should consider a triple O size because that's what people want. And they're like, you guys are the only ones that want that. <laughs> I don't know if that's just something they're saying, but, or if I'm just one of the people. I don't think anyone else is paying attention. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It could be that. They're like, that's um, just what people get is the dreadnought, you know? Yeah. And it's, yeah. you know, it makes sense in a lot of ways because it's a big, loud, loud. guitar and it's, it's great for heavy strumming which is all you really know how to do when you start out and it was my my seagull was dreadnought you know it's it's a great guitar but it's just you know i'm five foot eight a dreadnought's not a big deal for me but plenty of folks just it's uncomfortable and um both you know the size of the lower bout and the depth of it yeah so and triple o's are just cool because they're easy to play they're easy to um carry around (laughs) they Mm -hmm. don't take up as much space so um yeah we have a lot we have a lot more of that type of guitar we we tend to be more heavy on that side of things yeah all right gonna take a quick break here to thank some more rad midriff sponsors who help support the podcast First, we have DistroKid. If you are a musician and you want to get your music out there to more people, but you aren't quite sure how to do it, DistroKid can help you. DistroKid puts your music in online stores and streaming services such as iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many more. You get 100% of the income, so they don't take out any fees, which is great, and it allows you to do customized splits to different band members or musicians 
per song via what they call teams. And you know that's something that you probably need and you will especially need it as uh, you're coming out of the pandemic and you are starting a new band, right? If you have more than one project, you can also sign up for that too. It's just a really great option to get your music out there without a label or with a label if you choose. They also add lyrics to services for you and you can even do like fancy global release where everything gets released at the exact same time around the world, regardless of time zone. It's pretty neat. You can use the link distrokid.com slash VIP slash midriff to get a 7% discount and I'll include the link in the show notes as well. I also want to mention my buddies Adam and Jen up at Stompbox Sonic in Boston. Stompbox Sonic provides musicians with an extensive tonal palette for auditory exploration. Specializing in effects pedals, they offer a curated collection of companies large and small, some locally crafted, some assembled from around the world. Adam and Jen have been helping musicians and sound-based artists find their sound since 2009. By working collaboratively through one-on-one consultations, they do more than sell you a pedal. They ignite the creative spark to bring your music to life. You need that, right? They create a comfortable, judgment-free zone for all musicians where sonic experimentation is encouraged. And I am still jamming on my new pedal, and they did a great job pointing me in the right direction, and they can help you too. If you are interested in a consultation or you just want to see some cool pedals, see their unique selection, check them out on social media or at stompboxonic.com. All right, let's get back to the conversation. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think it's, it's something that I think about a lot. I mean, I, I'm more of an electric player personally, but I also worked in a, a shop for a mm-hmm. while, was doing some sales and some, I, I, something I think about when walking into a store and seeing what's available, I guess, like thinking about like, if, if the dreadnought is the norm, whose norm is it? Yeah. And what are we considering normal and why? And I think that like the loudness of that makes sense, but you're like, if you're just starting to play, do you want it to be that loud? <laughs> like maybe you want it to be quieter. Yeah. Um, maybe it's actually point. better to have a quiet instrument when you're like learning to play in your house and you don't want to make a lot of sound in your, you know, or disturb your neighbors or in your apartment mm-hmm. complex or whatever the situation might be. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's interesting to think about how those, those norms sort of come about. I do think that some of it, also that's sort of not really maybe considered is that I think for a long time music has been music and musical instruments have been more of a one size fits all and Mm -hmm. you need to make it work and it's not really like necessarily like oh it's only tall men who play guitar anyway right it's just more of a like like for instance you don't see a lot of left-handed violinists Mm -hmm. you know what I mean Mm -hmm. and and um I think as we as we grow, well, you know what I mean? Like playing on the left, um, yeah. as I'm sure there are plenty of left-handed violins, <laughs> but as we move forward and we see that some things, you know, can be easily adaptable to, um, different body sizes. And I think because guitar has just got to be the most played instrument of them all. Mm-hmm. I think you can walk out and go into a group of 10 people and nine of them probably <laughs> tried to play guitar before, um, I just think that making it more and more accessible, part of that is making it more comfortable mm-hmm. and a better fit. So I think that has something to do with it. It's just, you know, reasons that are more tr- out of tradition and less out of dominant culture or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I remember when like Big Baby Taylors came out and or, and Baby Taylors like came out and that was like a whole big situation. And now a bunch of companies are doing like that's like quality, but like smaller 
style. What do you even, I guess, what do you call that even? It's like travel. Yeah, I guess it's like a traveler guitar, not like the Martin backpacker or whatever, but like the actual like shaped like a regular small. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Something just smaller scale, but still having an adult size width and things that. Yeah. Yeah. So as far as like your particular role as a buyer, can you talk a little bit about your interactions with like distributors, reps, customers? And I mean, in general, I guess I'm thinking about like your interactions with regard to like gender and identity and things like that, how that's played out in that role. Sure. Um, I think just in the industry I'm in, it is very male dominated. And so I don't know, I don't know how many female buyers there are, but I think overall it's, I mean, I only have my experience to work off of, but it seems pretty cool. It's been pretty cool. There have been, you know, definitely over the years, different aspects where I felt like they're totally, they totally think I'm the receptionist and Mm -hmm. not the, not the um, salesperson or not the buyer or whatever. And I, and I've definitely had a couple reps actually somewhat recently who have, I think called me sweetie or something like that. I can't remember the exact pet name, but it was like, that's inappropriate. <laughs> I'm a, I'm not your daughter. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, you know, I've definitely felt like when I first became the buyer, I, I felt like some people were trying to school me, which I, I definitely needed a little schooling, but there was a certain tone and a lot of times I did I did kind of get on a high horse about it, but then I looking back, I'm just like, I wonder if they just do that to everyone, <laughs> you know, like certain people, you know, just have a condescending way about them. And it's hard um, to know. That's that's the thing is, is like hard it's hard to know. to know whether you're getting that because that's like, is this person just like that or are they being like that? to me because that is the thing that people do as well it's hard to know yeah yeah and I think that it's it's hard and I I definitely as I've gotten older have seen more I've seen more of like the sexism in the workplace than and or identified it more than I used to I used to a lot cut a lot of people a lot more slack I think the reason is just that there is a point where I mean I I've been doing this for I don't know if I said, but I've been working in the music instruments industry for 15 years. So there's a point where you start to see patterns and you you can't really do, you can't do anything but draw a certain conclusion. So, but overall, I, I definitely feel like the younger generation is coming in and not biased. So like, for instance, I definitely have noticed that like if a kid is sitting there with his first guitar and I go over to help him. It just seems like no big thing, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. but there have definitely been times when somebody else, you know, was just like, almost qu- felt like I was being questioned, like second guessed a lot or not completely trusted. And again, this is not like the norm. It's just certain scenarios that have come up over the years. The norm, I would say, is pretty, pretty open and pretty cool. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I've most of my life in the guitar shop world I've been the only woman or one of the only women so it's Mm -hmm. also you know it's like chicken and egg in a way like is it because you're just not used to it or is it because you're a jerk (laughs) (laughs) so I don't know as far as the space that you're in right now like do you are there ways that you all specifically try to create an environment in this space that is sort of like 
intentional for like making folks feel more comfortable? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I actually think that my boss, who's like the retail director or whatever, he's he's been real influential over just making the store always very positive and very anti, you know, what you think of with Mm -hmm. the, you know, stairway to heaven, you know, no playing stairway (laughs) to heaven, like that, that kind of concept of a guitar store where you go in and people don't care because they're too cool. And, um, a lot of, you know, my experiences I think are, I I imagine they're pretty typical when a woman, you know, like me, who's not a shredder goes into guitar center and just like so intimidated. And when I bought my first, um, electric, my, you know, that I bought, (laughs) it was a Les Paul. And I remember going in to pick it up and I picked it out and they, I went all the way to the suburbs to get this one guitar and the salesman, grabbed it from the back because they were holding it and he's like do you want to plug it in and play it and I'm like oh um I guess I'm supposed to (laughs) and so he brings me over to this like area where these like massive amps and they're half stacks and stacks he's like which amp would you like to plug into I'm like do you have anything like a crate 10 watt (laughs) you know I'm just like I don't I don't know what um I don't know what to do because it's scary in here and so our our shop is like well lit and you know it's just friendly and we we deal with beginners all the time we deal with a lot of people who come from that idea of what a what a guitar shop is and we try to reverse that a little bit and have a a place that's just very welcoming to all types of folks and um yeah, no judgment and and in fact encouragement yeah yeah can you can so you can you operationalize that a little bit more? So you said lighting, uh, encouragement. What else? What is it like? If I walk into your store, what's what's my experience going to be like? I like to think it's a it's a happy experience. <laughs> we want people to you know we want people to buy things, but we also we don't work on commission, and I mm-hmm. think that's kind oh, of that's a cool thing. Mm-hmm. We're not pushy salespeople. We're we're just actually just trying to get the right gear that would work for the person. So finding the right fit, you know, what's in your idea? What did you really come in here looking for? Mm-hmm. And using the expertise we have to guide you through that search. And a lot of times when I work with people on, you know, when I'm on the sales floor and I'm working with customers, a lot of what I'm thinking about is um, because if they're a beginner, it's like, just don't worry. No one's, you know, you can play your, your D chord and it's okay if that's all, you know, you know, just see how it feels on this guitar. See if this is a good fit for you. And, you know, just kind of taking away that, that thing between being a super cool guitarist who's like looks the part and can play the, the magical riffs and just being like a frumpy old lady who, (laughs) who might, you know, it's always been her dream to play guitar and yeah. she can shop there. And yeah. I think reason, reasonably people tend to feel comfortable there and feel good about the experience. Hopefully we, we really try. Mm-hmm. Are, what's the gender breakdown of the folks that work on the floor there? I'm the only, well, everyone is a male in our store okay. but me right now. That's... We've had a couple, you know, females over the years I've been got there, it, but we've had a, a big cut in, um, personnel because of 
the pandemic and some other things that the school's gone through. So right now we only have, we went from like a team of 12 to, I think we're at seven right now. Mm-hmm. And that's including management and people working in receiving and shipping, you know? So yep. it's, it's, it's mostly males and then me. Got it. Um, got it. Okay. Just curious. I would. Yeah. But throughout the rest of the school, it's probably, I, I'm really guessing, but I think there might be more females working in the whole school that than would males. Sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, different roles. Yeah. So, so as far as like your own experience as a musician, like either like, I guess mostly like going out and playing shows or different things. Like I'm wondering what your experience of gender has been like as a musician out in the world, either solo or with a band or how that might look for you. I have a really weird point of view, I think, in a lot of ways, because I've always, it's hard, it's really hard to explain. (laughs) In a lot of ways, like, I've never really been that person who learned the riffs and learned the licks and did cool stuff on the guitar. (laughs) But I've worked so much with dudes my whole life that I, for a while, had a little bit of an inferiority complex. And, like, you know, coming from that, point of view of being you know a tomboy growing up and being really like tough I had a lot of pride and had a lot of like a deep need to be able to um be as good Mm -hmm. as the worst ones (laughs) (laughs) and so and when it came to playing electric guitar I think that I you know, I finally, when I found my niche of funk, which I really don't play anymore, <laughs> but when I was doing that, I really felt like I was, and it's kind of stupid, but I was like feeling like I was earning respect and that was helping me to respect myself, which mm. is sort of the reverse of what should happen. But I think that's not uncommon. You know, that's what therapy's for. Well, there you go. <laughs> Nailed it right on the head there. <laughs> But I don't think that's an uncommon experience. I feel like sometimes people aren't able to value themselves until other people value them. Yeah, yeah. and that's definitely been the case with me. And I think um, what one thing that happened is um, when I when my band my last band broke up, which was several years ago, I started to again like look at my what I wanted to get out of music and what kind of direction I want to go in now. And I started to get into fingerstyle guitar. It was sort mm-hmm. of like you know, appropriate, um, because I was a came from a classical background and I did a lot of like blues finger style stuff in the past. And I started to put it all together and some people that I really liked their songwriting were finger style guitarists. And I started doing it myself. And I think it's because it's sort of, uh, sounds fancier than it is. (laughs) I, I felt like over time I really became, I gained respect or I gained Mm -hmm. a certain standing in the songwriter community that I'm in. And so it's, it's pretty, it's pretty cool because I think I've gone most of my life feeling intimidated and inferior. (laughs) And I'm not saying that I'm superior, but I feel like I've come into a place where I feel confident and, and I don't, really care anymore like that I don't know a lot of theory or that I don't know a lot of licks or that I can't I don't really care that I can't really jam because or at least not properly because I'm just like happy with what I do and what I do to me is kind of special and it's you know it's just unique and so I, I know I probably went on a tangent there but no I think that's I, 
I think that makes a lot of sense, like thinking about the ways that and it's interesting. I think some of this comes like the more you're a part of a community, like the more you can get yeah. ingrained, but also like with time, you're able to both understand what it is that you're your, your, your own personal capabilities and like honing them in in some sort of way that can then go out into the world and then the world gives you that positive feedback it's like this like interesting loop sort of definitely yeah yeah it's interesting and then there's it's an interesting thing too because I feel like there's the age component where it's like in some ways like people are like wow you're getting up there as far as a musician or something which is I think a thing that happens uh Mm -hmm. or I've felt to some degree sure but at the same time it's like you you've been playing for a really long time so you have all these skills built up so I don't know you know I I guess the thing for me is a lot of my community is comprised of seniors, I think, at this point. <laughs> yes. Um, I don't know about seniors, but I just, I think because of my, a lot of my, um, where I gravitated or where mm-hmm. I fell into, um, the, the community I sort of fell into, a lot of it revolves around the school that I work at. And um, mm. because it, that's a very community driven, community centric school. And, and a lot of folks they're not really from that school, but they're just part of this, I don't know, outcrop of it. And, um, and a lot of them are an older generation. And so I don't really know a lot of people, my, actually my own age, it's always a lot of people much younger and a lot of people much older. Uh And so I think in some ways, you know, and you see a lot of people who are like me, people who have day jobs and just haven't figured out how to make music be their thing and are kind of content anyway. Mm-hmm. And then you have people who are really just touring musicians and they're not really, um, they might have a part-time day job, but they're not, they're really more focused or m- more able to focus. And it's, um, it's been kind of cool because I think seeing a lot of those different experiences has allowed me to adjust my expectations of what I want to get out of it. Yeah. And um, the whole thing our parents grew up with, like, you know, you you're an adult when you get married and have kids and have a house and have a car and have a pension you know what I mean like there's no such thing as a pension anymore and I think all that you know all the the things that that messed up my mind a little bit early on just thinking oh I have to have financial stability and a full-time job with benefits and things like that really prevented me from breaking out and just taking risks I think that I see I see all the sides and I see now like there's so much possibility because so many people are doing it in different ways so it really makes it Mm -hmm. easier to find where you fit in that yeah I like that a lot I like the the idea of like understanding what the possibilities are or like having more spaces to be a musician or more examples of what being a musician can be like and or even a person (laughs) can be like uh just opening those up opportunities up in whatever way makes sense to like give people options I guess I mean and people obviously have always been creating them themselves but I think that there's it's more um accessible to see those options at this point all right so I'm curious if there's one thing that you sort of believe that you that maybe other people are not not on board with in the same way what's what's do you have an example of that maybe sure like in terms of gear I think um one thing that, you know, I worked at um pretty popular vintage guitar shop in town here for a while. And I think that a lot of people love vintage gear and used gear. And I really love new gear. <laughs> I just love. Ooh, controversial. I, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I love. <laughs> it 
it's not really that. It is that in the. I think in the. But... I think that's a real thing. I've actually come back around myself as being a person who's like very squarely in the like must be old category to like. Yeah, I've actually yeah. got some newer stuff. Yeah, and it's it's totally a personal preference. I mean, I'm not poo-pooing the <laughs> the used or vintage stuff, but for me, what I really love is being the one to put all that player wear. Yeah. So let's. Uh, let's talk really quickly. I just am curious as we're kind of closing out here, if you were like speaking to somebody in the industry, you know, whether it's like somebody who's, you know, a retail, another retailer, a distributor, anybody in bands, customers, whoever it might be, and they wanted to make change in the industry, what would you tell them? Sure. I think in some ways there are some manufacturers or companies that are seeing that there's been a major shift where women are, the majority of the players right now Mm -hmm. maybe not in celebrity status but in the everyday people the people that are picking up guitar it's women and um i think that shifting the focus a little bit you know when it comes to advertising or even the accessibility of the products whether it be the size or whatever but not in a way What's that company, Daisy? Daisy Rock. Daisy Rock. Not yeah. in a Daisy Rock kind of way, which I'm not against, but it's like, we're women, but we don't we don't have to have girly right. <laughs> inlays. But just sort of like thinking about the audience um, of your products and really what their needs are. I think that that was something that I always was confused about was... I can see why there might be more men in construction than women, but when it comes to playing guitar, it's like doesn't take more testosterone to play guitar. No. <laughs> like I, I, I guess I always thought, you know, it's so skewed, and I think part, you know, but why is that skewed? It's the cultural, it's a cultural thing, and it's um, so make so opening up that I don't mm-hmm. really have a specific way that can be done, but yeah. Is there anybody or are there any companies that you are seeing that you think are doing a particularly good job of that right now? Yeah, it seems like actually Fender Mm -hmm. is. I'm seeing a lot of um, women in their ads and a lot more. um, I think they see that. I think they're realizing that shift has Mm -hmm. occurred and are kind of um, adjusting to that. I've seen that a little bit with Yamaha Mm -hmm. as well. You know, some some more like. And almost advertising. I think the thing, the trap that's difficult is making something that's mainly for girls or mainly for boys, mm-hmm. you know, like, it, you know, like I said about Daisy Rock, you know, it's kind of like a, a female can play the same guitar. It doesn't have to have. I mean, I did once buy a Larivee with a really, really cool unicorn headstock inlay (laughs) and i had it for a good couple years before i was like you know i'm ready to pass this on but um yeah no 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 it's like how do you accommodate and like make it uh something that is like saying like yes this is open to you without it being like stereotypical and without it being like not for guys either like i guess the thing is there were some there were some ads and certain products I was seeing recently that really had a very female centric message. And I kind of felt like, 
That's cool. I mean, I want to see more. I, I almost feel like all you need to do is have more women mm-hmm. in ads or, or people of different, you know, different walks, different gender identities, different yeah. races in ads, not just like cool white guys. And, um, yeah. and that's really all it will take because, you know, my, one of my coworkers, for instance, his, his strat mm-hmm. is pink. I mean, people don't really care anymore. It's not like, it's not like there's only one, you know, one kind of guitarist for a female and one kind of guitarist yeah. for a male. It's like now, I guess it's just about who you're representing with your with your ads. Yeah, anyway. it's interesting too because I think it's like it's fine to have an ad where you're that seems like targeted towards a particular demographic as long as you're like doing that for a wide range of different people. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I I do think that it gets a people sometimes guys get a little caught up in like. Mm, that's too girly, you know, even when it's not because they're seeing it geared towards a feminine yep. audience. Yeah. And I think that's problematic as well because it's still not making an equal footing. You know, it's still kind of like this is for us and this is for them. You right. Know? Well, and it's, it's, <laughs> it's interesting like, too that not... the ways that like it's okay for women to like with the binary, like it's stereotypically it's more acceptable for women to do things that are considered masculine than for men to do things that are considered yes. feminine um which is a whole other yes. conversation <laughs> but yeah that's interesting uh cool okay so musically or other life wise what is what's coming up for you that people can be watching out for do you have anything coming up yeah um well so i i uh illustrator and water oh, yeah, we didn't even get well. into that. so <laughs> <laughs> so my, my website rebecca hasso.com which hasso is j-a-s-s-o it's it's got a lot of that artwork on it but i'm also musically speaking i i have my music there too and i'm working on a fantasy folk story concept album that i've been working on for a while wow <laughs> but i think we're actually making some progress on it and um in terms of the recording and getting getting it done and so um that's my that's one of my main focuses right now is just like recording that producing it you know multi-tracking it and actually making the artwork mm. for it as wow, well wow that is a a large endeavor (laughs) (laughs) it's my it's like a very niche genre because i think i made i love it i am 100 on board (laughs) cool uh so i'll have links to that in our show notes and um to your uh instagram and other contact info as well um and it's been so awesome to have you on thank you so much for joining me thank you it's been really great i loved it awesome thank you so much That was a fun conversation. So glad I got to talk with Rebecca, hear about her work and her fantasy folk story concept album, obviously. And if you want to reach out to her or learn more about Old Town School Music Store or the aforementioned album, you can find the links in the show notes. So today I want to dig in some more on the topic of allyship. And, you know, the term ally has been bandied about a lot over the last few years. People have been talking about what it means to be an ally. We've talked about it a bunch here. In some cases, folks have been deeming themselves allies. But the issue itself has been somewhat fraught. And there have been, like, concerns around the term itself and what it means to, like, actually do allyship well. So in recent years perhaps due to the fact that there are so many folks labeling themselves as allies, some have really 
preferred the term accomplice or co-conspirator in its place. So why, why those terms in particular? So the idea is that it is very easy to label oneself an ally to then engage in performative activism of some sort without actually putting oneself on the line, as we've discussed. So really, uh, to, to really support oppressed groups, you need to be wrapped up in the risk associated with that support. So being a member of an oppressed group and advocating for justice means that you are breaking the rules of the system, right? That's that's what it means. So in, in the terms accomplice or co-conspirator, it really acknowledges that risk. Being an accomplice or a co-conspirator is really putting yourself on the line. So whether socially, financially, physically, economically, whatever, all of those ways, right? So whatever you call it, what does it look like to do this well? Here are seven examples. So first, as I mentioned, actually putting yourself on the line. So physically, socially, financially, that means, you know, being willing to give up social connections or clout, risking criticism for your support, donating money or time in a way that is like actually significant to you, like it might actually hurt a little bit. Uh, risking getting yourself arrested or injured in some way uh, as part of your action. And protesting is not the only way to support, but if you do, it might mean standing on the edges of the protest, putting yourself actually physically on the line, right? So two, going beyond slacktivism, right, or performative allyship. So we've talked about this a bunch, but this means going beyond posting black squares on social media or just wearing a pin. It is like actually engaging and doing the work regularly, Three, not making it about you or self-defining. So it's not about like white knighting or martyrdom or saviorship, right? It's not about getting like points for the work that you're doing. You would do the work even if no one was there because it is the right thing to do, right? That's, that's what it's about. Four, not getting defensive when getting called out. So you want to see yourself as a good person. We all do. That's normal. So if someone is insinuating that you screwed up or you did something wrong, it is sometimes hard to take, right? So you want to explain all the good things that you did or how you tried to make up excuses. Instead, you could just thank the person for letting you know, tell them, you'll educate yourself about the issue and learn more and then move on with your day, right? Uh, continue to do the work, but like, don't make the focus about you. All right. So then... Five, doing internal work, but going beyond that. Yes, it's great to read every book on the anti-racist reading list or attending a training or whatever the thing might be, but it also requires going further as previously noted, right? Six, following leadership of those who experience oppression. So the people who know best how to liberate themselves from injustice are the ones who are experiencing it, right? So listen to them first. So for example, you should listen to a black person or a trans person first if you're focusing on anti-racism or anti-trans justice and not, for example, me. Seven, making mistakes. This is a process. You'll make mistakes. That's expected. Don't let the fear of messing up keeping, keep you from doing anything at all. And as I've mentioned in the past, learning how to apologize is a really important skill. All right, so let's be real. I have made all of these mistakes in some way or another at different times. You know, the information that I'm sharing are all things that I have learned in this process, and I'm still learning every day. I'm still screwing up every day. I'm still learning every day. Uh, it doesn't mean I stop, and I'm trying to do my best. That's what, that's what we're doing, but you got to keep keeping on with that. So most of this 
also is in reference to individual work. But of course, individuals are makeup companies too. And uh, much of this applies as well. I have discussed this at different points, including last episode where I covered it in reference to Blackout Tuesday. So, you know, what that looks like at the level of a company. So check that out if you're interested. But overall, recognizing the ways this works at the organizational level is super important too. All right. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts so more folks hear about it. Please reach out and connect via Instagram or Midriff Podcast or via my website, hillarybjones.com. I would love to talk to you. And thanks so much for listening. Thank you.